0: Ben Hooper set out to make history this past week. Uh, Ben Hooper is a retired British policeman. Uh, He has set out to swim the Atlantic Ocean 2,000 miles from Africa to South America. It's going to take him uh, some four months to do this. He's been training for the last three years. He's going to be flanked, is even now as we speak, flanked, by two boats as he is making this journey. The plan is for him to swim in 12, 12 hours a day, two shifts a day. And again, this is going to take him roughly four or five months. Um, he knows the risks, or at least he says he does. Uh, the risks of sharks, they've got plans for that. Uh, high seas, that's certainly uh, no small thing. But there are other, uh, other concerns, other risks that they're trying to take into account as well. And that would be exhaustion. Um, perhaps, uh, an emotional, physical breakdown at some point. You know, as you're out there swimming hour after hour, day after day, week after week, and you see no horizon in sight, there is a danger of just losing it. Of feeling like you're just chasing an elusive horizon on an endless ocean. And they have had to come up with some ways to guard against that. I bring this up because I think in some respects that's how we think of God. That His demands upon us are endless. It's a horizon we're never going to arrive towards. Our acceptance is really all up to us. His acceptance of us is all up to us. And we're just about ready to give up. You know, the problem with all of that is it's just not true. His acceptance of us being based on us is just not true. If you have your Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we're pressing on here in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew 9. I'm going to read verses 9 through 13. It's a short, profound passage. Um, If you're trying to find that in your Bible, that is the first of the books of the New Testament, the first of the Gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew 9. That's where we are. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. So if you would follow along with me in your Bible, I'm going to read now God's Word. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for speaking as you did that day. there in the town of Capernaum, there in the midst of all those people, uh, the folks who, who saw, who heard, who were struck, who were convinced, who were scandalized. Thank you. Thank you for all of this. Uh, thank you for um, working through Matthew such that not a letter was left out that you wanted to be written and, and no more was written than you wanted to be written. And then for the ages... In your mercy to us, you have preserved your word for the sake of us, your people, that we might know you, and in moments like this, be able to read and study it together. Pray that you would study us, even as we study it and change us, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, here's a truism. You need to know where you are. You need to know where you are and then embrace that fundamental reality. So a few of us are going to be traveling this week, uh, going to visit family on the holiday excursions. And uh, here's your public service announcement I'm going to give to you, a little free 101 counseling. Okay? As you're going off to visit these family members, uh, you're going to be uh, encountering certain traditions um, certain uh, customs. Some of them may be um, unfamiliar and strange to you. Some of, some of them may be all too familiar and despised by you. You know, oysters in the stuffing. <laughs> Tofu instead of turkey. Uh, the seating arrangements. At the kids' table, again, really? Too little football on the TV, depending on your preference. Too much politics at the table. Um, What do you do with all that? Here's what you do with all that. You're the guest. Suck it up. (laughs) Suck it up, buttercup. You're not the host. You're the guest. Deal with it. Know where you are. See what I'm saying? Know where you are and then embrace that, live out of that fundamental reality, which brings me to the text. Where is he going? I'm going somewhere. Where are we going? Um, Jesus we looked at this last week, in, in what, the passages we saw last week, Jesus shows himself some, some yet more startling things in terms of his authority. Not only, not only is he, uh, does he have the right, the prerogative the authority over disease and nature and the demons, but sin. This is what we saw last week. He has the authority to forgive. He has the authority to remove the guilt and shame from our lives, subjectively and objectively. He has the the right, the authority, the prerogative to make right the broken relationship between us and God. And, And that is an astonishing claim, an amazing thing, to discover, and just to begin to to grapple with a little bit. But it does beg a question. How does he do that? On what basis does he do this? And what I'm going to say next is, is what sets Christianity apart categorically, completely away from every other worldview, every other philosophy, every other religion. How can we be accepted by God? This is the Christian gospel. This is the good news by grace alone. We are accepted by God by his grace alone. His undeserved unearned unmerited, unshakable favor. That is how, and that is only how, we can be accepted by Him, by His grace alone. And we need to live out of that fundamental reality to know it, embrace it, and live out of it. Now you ask, because I know what you're thinking, okay, but what does that look like? How does that play itself out? And frankly, who is this really for? Well, our text shows us beautifully, wonderfully, uh, in, in by giving us two groups, I guess you could say, two groups in which to, to think about here. And I'm going to put it this way. Those who feel themselves, who think themselves to be on the outside and those who think themselves, to feel themselves to be on the inside. And we need to grapple with where we are in connection with both of those groupings. So let's take the first, for those on the outside. And by that, here's what I mean. This is, this, this is for those who, who hear this message of the kingdom of God and assume themselves, well, sounds great, but that's, I'm, 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 I'm excluded. I'm on the outside. And the good news is, and you need to hear this, there are none of us who are too far gone. There are none of us in this room or anywhere in this world who are too far gone. Let's identify the parties. Who's in play here? Uh, who Who is Jesus interacting here from the start of this, this text? We'll start with Matthew. Uh, the author, the human author... Uh, of what we're reading. So, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. This is, this is Matthew's story. This is the first time he's mentioned in the course of what he's been writing here now for well, what we would call nine chapters. Well, eight chapters, and then pushing into, into nine. Um, this is his story, and he, and he tells it more so than any of the other gospel writers, de-emphasizing his role The beautiful humility, this self effacing way that Matthew describes himself and his interactions with Jesus. Clearly, he's trying to call attention to the party who needs the, who is deserving of the attention, I should say, and that being Jesus. Matthew owns from the start. This is what I was. This is my past. I was a tax collector. And you need to understand what that means. That's beyond, I know, I hate to, any IRS agents in the room? This is beyond whatever we may think of the IRS today. A tax collector in that part of the world and at that time was an authorized agent of an occupying army we know as the Romans. And, and his occupation as a tax collector was known to, to practice extortion, putting the squeeze on your fellow natives. In addition to that, keep being in mind this is a Jewish culture. As a tax collector, you're coming into continual contact with pagan, despised Gentiles. So, the three strikes, Matthew is despised. Three strikes, he's out. Politically, despised. Ethically, despised. Culturally, despised. He's a hated man. And Matthew says from the start, you need to understand something about me. There was a time in my life when finances and money and security, material means was more important to me than friendship and reputation. That's where I was until I met Jesus. That's Matthew. Who else do we encounter here? Some friends of Matthew, actually. It seems that Matthew threw a party, something of a celebration. The other gospel writers tell us this was actually at his house. So you pick up and read in verse 10 again. And as Jesus reclined at table, and that's referring to the way in which it was custom to, to lay on your side, not sitting up erect in a chair. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So you see, Matthew and his elation and his joy, and I'll talk about that here in just a minute, as to, to being called by Jesus away out of what he was formerly uh, in, throws this party, and he invites his friends and his fellow members of the tax collector union. And they gather there at his house. You need to understand, we need to understand who this grouping of people was and how they were regarded by everyone else in the town. Tax collectors and sinners was almost redundant. You know, whores and sinners. Prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. It was just, you know... A jumbled bunch is how they were regarded. These are individuals. This is how the people, the populace, would have regarded this gathering of people that Jesus is in the middle of, and apparently gladly so, bringing his disciples along with him. These are folks who are known for the impurity of their lives and the foolishness of their beliefs. And Jesus... Is there. Which then takes me to this. Let's, okay, that's, the, that's who the parties are Matthew and his friends. What is, let's unpack Jesus' response to them. Is his the customary response, the understandable response, the spiritual, religious response to just not go there, to not deal with them? Hardly. It's just, in fact, the polar opposite of that. Verse 9 again. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man. Called Matthew sitting at his tax, the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Jesus is saying to Matthew, I want you, you, Matthew, to be my disciple. In fact, let's push this further. I want you to be one of my apostles, one of my authorized agents. One of the twelve, Matthew, I'm calling you. And by the way, lest we miss this, lest anybody that day was to miss it. This was not just an invitation. This was not just a suggestion. This was a command. the, The verb tense is in the imperative. And Matthew responds, rises and goes. The other gospel writers tell us he leaves everything. He leaves behind this safe, secure, lucrative position and follows Jesus. What else do we see? Of whom else do we read? Let's push further back to the friends, the party, the celebration. Verse 10 again. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, yeah, that house, behold, again, Matthew, he's trying to help us get a sense of the wonder of this, right? So behold this. Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and His disciples. This is so significant. You need to understand, again, part of the customs of the day, to dine together, to sit at table together. It's not just like we do, just, oh, let's, hey, can we just grab a meal? And like, you know, just, just pay, get up, go. No, no, no. This is so much, in, in that part of the world, in that time and place in history, it was a significant thing to sit down with someone and share a meal with them. It, it's implying... Mutual acceptance. The intentional pursuit of a reciprocal relationship. I want to know you. And pursue that with you. That's what it meant to sit down at table with another person. And that's what Jesus is doing with Matthew and all the other tax collectors and the sinners, the despised ones of this town. So what do we learn here? That with Jesus, none of, none of us and no one else is too far gone. I was reminded of that in a news uh, piece that I came across. I don't know, last few days. Um, William and Diana Turner just celebrated in the last few weeks their 50th wedding anniversary. So you know, kudos to them. But they've got something else to celebrate, and that is the recovery or discovery or rediscovery of William's wedding band. You see, here's what happened. 1966, just a few months after they get married, William Turner is out on a football field serving as an official. It's actually the high school that they went to. Out on the football field with a bunch of guys. And somewhere in the course of the afternoon, he loses his wedding band. And they tried to find it. They spent a lot of time looking for this thing. But it's like the proverbial needle in the haystack. So he just said, "You know, forget it." Fast forward 50 years later, they're visiting. The Turners are visiting with some friends in that area. They get to talking about what happened on that field, and the husband of the, the friend just gets this wild-haired idea. It's like, "Well, I got a metal detector. Let's go look for it." So they do. They spend the afternoon looking for this wedding band, and you're thinking they found it. No, they didn't. They looked and they looked and they looked and they couldn't find the thing, so they they gave up. Well, not really. The Turners went back home, but the friends had this 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 this. We got it. I want to find it. Now we gotta find it. It's like this challenge. So they spent weeks, hundreds of hours in this field with this metal detector, and they found it. But four inches down underneath the you know, in the ground, they find this wedding band. And now William Turner wears this thing, secure from a necklace around his neck. It's not going anywhere. I mean, I'm thinking his wife is thinking that in particular. Some of you, this is why I'm telling you this story, some of us may feel, though, like that ring. Pre-finding. Too lost. Too far gone too abandoned, unredeemed, unredeemable, I I mean, irrecoverable. But what is this text showing us? That not a one of us is too far gone. Not a one of us is too far gone. Jesus, we need to hear this, oh, we need to know this, and say it, remind it, and Speak it, proclaim it from the the mountaintops. Jesus is a friend to tax collectors and sinners. To everyone who has been marginalized and ostracized, and oh, how he knows what that feels like. To the depths does he know what that feels like. He is glad to associate, to identify himself with anyone who has gone their own way, lost their way, and wants to find their way home. Anyone, however far they've gone. We are accepted by God by grace alone. We need to live out of that reality. That's good, good news. We need to absorb that and live out of that. But that then takes us to the second point. Because there's another whole grouping there. You see, for those who see themselves to be on the outside, you may well be closer to the inside than you think. But conversely, here's the sobering part those who think themselves to be on the inside may be much further outside than they think. And who are the parties here? Well, the Pharisees. Verses 11-13. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to His disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when He heard it, He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a lot of irony in here. Um, who are these Pharisees? Let's identify these parties. Um, this is not a, there are a lot of different parties and sects within Judaism back in the first century. Uh, the Pharisees were one, not the majority party, but certainly a very, very influential party among, among the Jews there. Paul, as a man who once was a part of that party and could look back and say, I know how they think, I know what's going on in their hearts, he could say with all authority, they, had, they have zeal without knowledge. Zeal without knowledge. The Pharisees loved God's law. They were uh, all about the obedience to the law. So much so that what people through the years have referred to as fences. They would set up fences around the law. Tripwires, I guess you could say. Keep, you know, law upon law, layer upon layer to keep themselves from disobeying, from falling away from God's true law. But sadly, though, that it was all so much built on and geared towards the externals. Very little of the heart. So that Jesus then, later on in the Gospels, refers to them as blind guides and whitewashed tombs. What else do we know about them? Self-righteous. Self-righteous. Now, they would never have said this, but here's what's going on in the heart, layer of the heart within the Pharisees, and in these men in particular. Never would they have said this, but they did not recognize any need that they had for grace. Because you see how they view the law. How they have viewed it being externals. How they have viewed God. No, really, again, they never would have said this, but in essence, this is how they live. As though God owed them. Look, we've obeyed. We kept our end of the bargain. Now it's up to you, right? It's a contractual deal. Pony up. We've obeyed. We're the holy ones. We're the righteous ones. We can afford to look down our noses upon everyone else. The unwashed, irredeemable ones. You see, they have no category. This is why they're asking what they're asking. They have no category for a rabbi associating himself with such rubbish. So that's why they say what they do. Yeah, we, it's not too hard to envision this. It's, go, it's all everywhere, all the time. More in our hearts than we know. Colonial America. Uh, it was common back from the earliest days. You know, in, in these small towns, these settlements, you, know, you have one church, usually. And in, by the time you know, maybe it grows and gets a little bigger, you're going to build a second church. And that's when the interesting, um, sensitive discussions begin. Because you've got to ask yourself in this context, where are the influential families going to sit? Which pews are they going to inhabit? Because, see, the custom was in colonial America, within the churches, that if you had done a lot of good service to the community, oh, and if you had a lot of money, yours was the privileged space in the pews, which ostensibly in that culture was the front row. Forgetting our ancestors totally lost the concept that the church is actually an association of sinners. We've lost it too, folks. It's not just a problem back then. It's here and now. Here. Here. And now. Okay, how does Jesus respond? That's the Pharisees. Back to our text. How does Jesus respond to them? Well, he points towards, he gives them some clarifying understanding on first his mission, verse 11 and 12. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he's answering the question, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He's saying, look, I've come as a doctor. And if I'm going to treat the sick, I've got to be with them. Right? Right. But that's not all that he's getting at here. He's not just speaking of his mission. He also needs to address their condition. So he presses, lest there be any misunderstanding. And he goes a little further. And quoting from Hosea 6, he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. I came to heal the sick. And by the way, you're nowhere near as healthy as you think you are. And how do I know there is no impulse of mercy in your heart for other people? You are spiritually sick and it's coming out. You don't know God's mercy, and I can tell because you do not show His mercy. What do we learn here? Something very sobering that we need to grapple with. Yes, those who feel, who think themselves to be on the outside may be much closer than they think to the inside. But those who think and feel themselves to be on the inside may well be much further to the outside than they dare imagine. See, it's the problem, the perennial problem with religious people. When you've been in the church a long time but without the gospel, you forget. You forget that the continual ongoing need for repentance not just of what we think, of our unrighteousness, of all the bad stuff that we do. But repenting also of our righteousness, of why we do the good things that we do. We forget that. We become blind to that, inoculated to that. But it's not just that. There's something else here. We begin to lose sight of the difference, the vital difference between transforming love and accepting love. I'm stealing something here from Dan Doriani and his commentary here on this passage. Very helpful point that he brings up. Transforming love is beautiful, it's good, it's right. I mean, it's, it's saying to, to someone we care for, I care so much about you, I want you to become the best version of yourself. Absolutely, that's love. But that has to be balanced by, subordinated to, accepting love. And without the accepting love, this becomes idolatrous control. Accepting love takes the person as you find them. Warts, sin, struggles, and all. And embraces. Just as, you find, just as God does with us. It's vital... Vital in the context of human relationship that we have the balance between, yes, the vision for the transforming love, but the foundation of accepting love. It's vital in the context of friendship that we get that right, in marriage that we get that right, in parenting that we get that right, in the church that we get that right. The balance between, yes, the transforming love, but it's got to be subordinated to and built on accepting love. It's got to be. And Jesus is the only one who gets this right. Jesus is the only one who actually gets this right. Now what does this have to do with the text? Because the Pharisees didn't get this. Their response to this rabble in the house is, you clean up your act and then I'll talk to you. You get your stuff straight and then I'll deal with you. You repent. You repent. And then I'll love you. I'll accept you. They didn't get it. We still don't. We. That was intentional. I. You. We. Still don't get this. God accepts us by grace Alone, By grace alone. The tax collector and the sinner must live out of that reality. The Pharisee must live out of that reality. Both. All. God accepts us by grace alone. I'm going to end with a story. Jerry Bridges uh, writes this in his classic Transforming Grace and I think it makes the point beautifully. Um, Sam and Pam, two friends, both arrived in the United States as immigrants from the country, it's made up, of Quadora. Each wants to buy a house and it so happened that they each found one for sale by a certain wealthy man. Both houses were priced at $100,000. Sam arrives with 500,000 Quadros, the currency of Quadora, and Pam arrives with one million Quadros. They knew Quadros were not worth one million, excuse me, one dollar a piece, but they assumed they would be able to exchange the Quadros for at least enough to buy a house. However, Quadro had been ravished by hyperinflation and the Quadro had been debased until it was virtually worthless. The bank would not accept their Quadros in exchange for any dollars. Let me just stop there. I'm gonna pick it up in a second, but let me stop there. We are Sam and Pam. We are Sam and Pam. Our currency is worthless. Our moral excellence, our achievements, our not doing the wrong things and doing all the right things, our record, our striving, that currency is worthless. And that's not how we're used to thinking, because you know, back in Quadora, we had some buying power. Not here. This is a new economy. Those old rules don't apply, you see? Let me push into the story. To compound the problem, Sam and Pam both discovered that the wealthy man from whom they hoped to buy their houses was not unknown to them. They'd each had business transactions with the man while still in Quadora and were heavily in debt to him. Sam owed him about a million dollars. Pam owed him 500,000. Since their quadros were worthless, neither could begin to pay his or her debt let alone buy a house from Then a strange thing happened. The wealthy man, hearing Sam and Pam, were now in this country, and knowing they would have arrived with only their worthless quadros, sought them out. Despite the fact they were heavily in debt to him, he canceled the debts, gave them each the house they desired, completely furnished with utilities and maintenance paid for life. That is how God's grace works with us. The currency of our morality and good deeds is worthless in God's sight. To make matters worse, we are all so heavily in debt because of our sin. You put those two things together and there's no question of our being able to even partially pay our way to Him. But, and here's the word, That's the word that we need to hear and hold to. But, God accepts us by His grace. That's good news. It's the good news that we must hear and grapple with and own and live out of tax collectors, sinners, and Pharisees all. Let's pray. Jesus, we have nothing to bring. We have no claims upon You, but we bring so much and make so many claims. But we have nothing. Some of us here know that. We know we have nothing but rags. But others of us here are deluded and proud and deceived, seeing their rags as robes. We have nothing to bring. You are making that clear, but equally so making clear that you accept us by grace alone. And that is our certainty. That is our assurance. That is our security. That is our hope. Help us to hear. Help us to live out of These things deepen our humility towards one another. Deepen, grow our thanks to You in this week of thanksgiving. Oh my goodness, would You deepen our thanks to You for Your grace and mercy to us. In Your name we pray. Amen.